Several years ago, my wife's grandmother, uh, Grandy or Janet's mother, Irma Brown, uh, we were visiting with, with her and when she lived in Pensacola. And she gave me a little, I call it a sprig. She, we were actually outside uh, in her front yard. And she went to this, what she told me was a sago palm, and began to dig up these little sprigs that had grown around it. And gave me, I guess it was two of them, and said, go plant these at home, and uh, they'll grow into what you see here. I said, yeah, right. I was thinking that to myself, because I could not see how that one little branch could grow, especially if I'm planting it. But I, I did what she said. And now when you go to our house, if you look on one corner and right in front of our house, in a flower bed right in front of our front door, there are two huge sago palms. In fact, I regret planting that one in the, in the front of our house. But I tell you that to, to, to uh, let you know if you didn't know already, I'm not a horticulturalist. I'm not uh, someone that's uh, very good with that. And so when I was studying John 15 for this morning's lesson, there was something that Jesus said in the vine of the branches in that parable that caught my eye, and it's this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So I thought about this pruning process. And I, again, the... The inexperienced uh, horticulturalist uh, have tried to cut back bushes. In fact, we had a neighbor that used to live next door to us, Julia, who worked in her yard all of the time. And whenever I was outside working in my yard, she would make suggestions uh, to me, um, quite often, in fact. And one day she said, you know, you can cut these, these uh, azalea bushes back. And she said, here, let me show you. And she cut that azalea bush down to pass the leaves and everything. And I thought, she killed my bush. Of course, then I said, well, that's one less bush I have to cut. But it, in fact, Julia was right. It grew back, and it was even more healthy than it had been. But Jesus, in telling about the, the vine and the branches, is not really talking about plants or a vine, a literal vine. He's talking about people. He's talking about his disciples. And so he's talking about pruning people here. And in my um, experience of cutting bushes back or pruning them, if, uh, if that could be a painful process for the plant. And there would have been a time in my, in my experience when I thought I'd be like Julia cutting back that azalea. I'd have thought she's killed it. But again, Jesus is talking about his disciples. And he's saying that every disciple that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And we've underscored this morning how John 15, 8, he tells us that by this, uh, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so shall you be my disciples. It's characteristic of his disciples that we bear fruit and that's how we glorify God. And when we, as his disciples, as his followers, bear fruit, Jesus says he prunes us so that we may bear even more fruit. So again, he's talking about pruning people, which to me 
can be a painful process. So I wanted to think along with you about this God's pruning process, how that works. Well, I'm going to change some of the imagery here to to go to what I believe to be a parallel passage where it's a similar uh, idea, and that's to Hebrews chapter 12. And so the imagery that I'm changing to from the vine and the branches and being pruned back to bear more fruit, now let's go to the imagery that the Hebrew writer uses of running a race. Running a race. The first three verses, notice with me. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that race that is set before us, what the Hebrew writer is describing, is more of a marathon than a sprint. Because it requires perseverance on our part. And the Hebrew writer is writing to Jewish Christians, many of whom were wanting to go back into Judaism. And he's stressing to them throughout this book why that... It, they did not need to do that. That was not the will of God for them. So he's encouraging them to persevere as they run this Christian race. Verse 2, and Chris read this for us this morning. Looking unto Jesus, or fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So again, the imagery of running a race requires perseverance. It's going to require effort on our part to the point where we have to keep on keeping on because there's going to be opportunities when we're going to be discouraged. But he's encouraging us, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look at what he endured for your sake for your salvation and allow his example to be an encouragement to you to keep on running. Stay faithful to the Lord and keep following in his steps. But notice verse 4 with me. He's saying to these Christians who were suffering and, and some of them struggling even with their faith. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. The NIV states it like this. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus shed his blood as he was accomplishing the will of God, our salvation. He says it, it hasn't, that hasn't been required of you. So he's saying, keep on keeping on. Look, look at the example of Jesus. But realize, you haven't been called upon to shed your blood as you run the Christian race. Though they might be called upon to die for Jesus. So I think the Hebrew writer is again encouraging these struggling Christians to persevere, to keep on, even when it gets tough. And he's saying that as much in verse 4. You haven't yet resisted, which you could, to the point of shedding your blood. So the imagery chase, changes, not just the idea of persevering, of overcoming any discouraged, personal discouragement uh, to the point where you just, instead you keep on running, 
Now there's even more obstacles that you may have to overcome. It made me think of something that I, some of you will remember this running back by the name of Walter Payton. I think Sweetness. Wasn't Sweetness one of his nicknames? And I read uh, a while back that it was a Monday night football game. The Chicago Bears were playing, and Walter Payton was their running back. That the announcer said that Walter Payton had accumulated over nine miles in career rushing yards at that point. Nine miles. And they were talking about how many yards that was. And the other announcer remarked, yes, and... That's with somebody knocking him down every 4.6 yards. And I thought about Walter Payton, the running back, and how many yards he had amassed in his career, but yet there were obstacles in his path all along the way. And the Hebrew writer, again, encouraging Christians and encouraging us today, saying, keep running, don't quit, persevere, even when it gets tough. And it will get tough. And then the imagery changes in verse 5 and following. From running a race to now it's discipline from a father. And here's where I'm going with the vine, uh, the branches being pruned so that they may bear more fruit. It seems to me that would be akin to this idea of discipline from the father. So let's look at what the Hebrew writer says. Verse 5. I'll be reading from the NIV for this, for this text. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, he's quoting Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those that he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. In quoting this, in, in light of its context, the imagery of persevering as if running a marathon race with obstacles, with opposition. And now he goes to discipline in a family setting, parental discipline. He's further underscoring the fact that living the Christian life is not, is not easy. If you think about what Jesus told his disciples, he told them to count the cost of being a disciple of his. He also said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And taking up a cross wasn't just putting on a necklace. This meant bearing the weight of living for Jesus and the persecution and, and other trouble that that might bring to your life because of that decision. Living the Christian life is, is not easy. But what he's trying to underscore to us and to his original audience is Christianity is not easy. But that can be a good thing. That can be a good thing. He uses adversity to serve a larger positive purpose. Look with me to verse 7. Endure hardship... As discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. So he, he ties it back to home life. Which one of you was not disciplined by your father? 
And that's not a given in uh, probably then and definitely not today that that discipline is exercised in homes. And this idea of being illegitimate is not a statement about the baby's character. It's a reflection of the father's irresponsibility. Because the idea is a father, a true loving father, is going to discipline his children. And included in that discipline is not just correction, not just punishment, but training and teaching. All that that goes into uh, the full meaning of what it means to discipline. But just like fathers discipline their children, God is treating you as sons when he disciplines you. And let's keep reading verse 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and, and live? It's kind of tough talking about this when your dad is in the audience. And he's probably thinking about how he disciplined me. And I remember that uh, very vividly. And it, it included instruction. It included training. It included correction, and it included punishment. But I know without the shadow of a doubt that everything my dad did and my mom in raising me was done out of love. And I know many of you echo the same things. And I'm not going to address when parents discipline in the wrong way um, or even the lack thereof. But I'm using the same imagery that the Hebrew writer is is speaking about. We respect our parents because they loved us enough to set boundaries for us and to, to let us know that, that there are consequences from choices that we make. And that was done to help create in us a sense of self-discipline and an, and an awareness as we grow to maturity that there are still boundaries and we cross those boundaries and there are consequences. And just like a loving father, a loving mother disciplines their children, God disciplines his children. God disciplines his children. And we know with his discipline, it's always going to be in the right way and for the right reasons. It's going to be for our good. But there's a thing about discipline, verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And what I'm getting at is verse 11 where it talks about no discipline seems pleasant at the time. And all those who've experienced it say amen. Even so with God's discipline. It's not a pleasant experience. It can be a very difficult experience. But we need to understand it as being disciplined from God. Just like our fathers disciplined us, they did the best that they, that they could. God disciplines us for our good to this end that we may share in his holiness. We may share in his holiness. How many times have we said or heard it said, but God wants me to be happy and sometimes when that statement is made they're trying to disregard something that God's word teaches but God wants me to be happy perhaps a response to that would be no actually God wants you to be holy 
And when we live according to his standards and when we seek to live by his holiness, that's when we can experience true joy, living within the will of God. More than anything else, God wants us to be holy and to help us be holy. He disciplines us. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want children to understand. Parents don't enjoy discipline, disciplining their children. It's tough. The idea, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's not fun. And, it, and, and yes, as a child, it's, it's very unpleasant at the time, but what's the purpose of it? What it produces. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying, what it produces. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So just like godly parents discipline their children in order to prepare them to, to live a godly life and to help them get to heaven, even so God disciplines His children as unpleasant as it may be at the time to benefit us, to benefit His children. You see, the Lord disciplines those that He loves. How does He discipline us? How does God discipline us? Here are some ways. Number one, by the instruction of his word, he disciplines us. He teaches us. He trains us by the instruction found in his word. Listen to Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach your law. You teach your law. And by so doing, you discipline that, that person. When we read God's word and make application of it properly to our own lives, God is setting those boundaries for us. He is disciplining, disciplining us in, in that way. After all, all scripture is given by inspiration, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for for reproof, for correction, for instruction. You see all those things that the Word of God, that, that the Word of God does for us, that the man of God may complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How does God correct us, reprove us, instruct us? Through, through His Word. It is His will, and it's an exercise of His discipline that we look into the mirror of God's Word as James 1 teaches us, and we look at ourselves. And whatever is amiss, according to what the mirror reveals, that we make those corrections. That's how he disciplines us. Another way is by turning his own hand against us, not in anger, but in corrective love. And how God does this every time we may not be able to say, well, God did this. But we know from his word that he does correct us. He does discipline us. And we'll talk about some other ways that may be more readily seen. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with, with the world. When we experience adversity, we need to examine ourselves to see if there's any lingering sin in our lives. It may be uh, that God is trying to correct us, discipline us, so that we may learn the lessons of God's discipline. Another way that God disciplines us is to allow us to experience the consequences of our own choices, good and bad. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sometimes God disciplines us by allowing us to suffer the consequences of our choices. I think a beautiful example is the prodigal son. And we know the, the father in that parable represents God. And the prodigal is, is one who doesn't want to live by the will of God. And we place ourselves in that parable and we ask, well, did the father want his son to go waste the inheritance and riotous living and end up in the pig pen? No, he, we, put, we put ourselves in that situation. No, he didn't want him to go, but he allowed him to go. But then we see in the parable, he was also longing and looking for his return. And to quote W.T. Allison yet again, Sometimes we don't look up to God until we are flat on our backs. Doesn't God allow us to suffer the consequences of our choices, even to the point where we may end up flat on our backs? Because sometimes it's only when we reach that point that we'll ever look up to God again. And if God works that way, isn't that an expression of his discipline to allow us to suffer those consequences to hopefully turn us back to him? Uh, Dan Williams said this, we're not always punished for our sins. Sometimes we're punished by them, by them. Another way God disciplines us is by allowing us to face adversities that test our faith. This isn't punishment for our sins, it's allowing us to learn from difficult experiences. Sometimes we as children or as parents may allow our children to try to work something out on our own and, 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 and by so doing, they, they see how tough, how difficult it may be. But we do that to give them the opportunity to learn and to, to struggle a bit so that they can be better prepared to face a bigger challenge in the future. Not every adversity is the result of personal sin. But any hardship can be used by God to strengthen us. Any hardship. And by facing trials, as James says, we develop that perseverance and we persevere to, to grow to maturity. James 1 Verses 2 through 4. Remember, more than anything else, 
including our temporary comfort, God wants us to be holy. And it seems to me that one way God disciplines us is by allowing us to face difficulties, to cause us to deepen our faith, to cause us to build perseverance. And we would never grow in our spiritual maturity unless we're tested, unless we're tested. So two closing admonitions. Number one, endure hardship as discipline, whether you caused it or not. Whether it's a consequence of sin or not, endure hardship as discipline. What does that look like? It means that whatever we encounter in this life, that we seek to learn from this experience. I'm reminded of, of a woman that was quoted. She was going through a difficult time. And she was just praying out loud. And she said, she wanted, she intended to say, God, when am I going to get out of all this? But what came forth from her mouth was this, God, what am I going to get out of all this? And that was a great question. What can we learn from our challenging experiences? What lessons can, can we learn from that? I once read a, an article out of a publication out of Oklahoma Christian and called Good News. And this Good News publication con contained this story about a, cup, a Christian couple whose home was destroyed by a fire in the Colorado fire. You remember that uh, several years ago. Um, John and Terry Gardner were their names. They lost their home in this fire. Why is that in a good news publication? Well, they interviewed this couple who had an amazing attitude about this whole experience, having lost, you know, everything that they owned. But let me read to you uh, some, some of the quotes from this family. We have a wonderful church family that has covered us with prayer through this. And I attribute the fact that we've been able to hold up to the, to the power of those prayers. We had a great house with wonderful memories and a bunch of stuff. The stuff is gone. And we're a little sad about some of the memories we lost. But in the end, it was just stuff. And we, and we still have each other. We have our dog. We have our church family, our physical family. And a wonderful, loving God that has promised to take care of us. And I know that He will. We are still so richly blessed, it is hard to believe. And this one I have up on the screen. We're not sure what blessings are yet to come, but we know there are lessons to learn. Maybe something about where your treasures are. Someday we'll look back on this and have a better understanding. For now we're okay, just knowing that God is in control. His will be done. We're planning to rebuild our house on the same lot, and we're looking forward to making many more memories in it. Isn't that an amazing perspective? But in this perspective is we know we're going to learn a lot through this. Is that the easy perspective to have, especially when you've incurred such loss or when the difficulty is, is, is that difficult? No, it's not easy. But the challenge for us is to endure affliction 
as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Always seek to maintain the attitude, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? But secondly, is continue to look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at what he endured. Look at what he accomplished because he was resolved to do the will of God. And what he accomplished was our salvation. Consider him who, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Don't give up. Look at the one who gave his life for you. Draw from him that strength that you need to keep on being faithful to him, even when you don't have all the answers, even when you don't even know what questions to ask. Keep following him. Fix your eyes on him. Follow him faithfully, and he will ultimately lead you home. God's pruning process is painful, just like God's discipline. But he does it because he loves us and he wants us to grow. And he wants us to keep on growing until Jesus comes back uh, to take us home. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus tonight, uh, if you're ready to obey the gospel, if you need the prayers of the church, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.